Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. Thanks for tuning in tonight. And thanks to Diva Haley for her use of the music from her Sacred Alchemy CD. Uh, that cut was her version of Ancient Mother that she calls Narayani. Uh, I'm so grateful to the artists uh, like Diva who grant uh, me permission to use uh, their music for your enjoyment here on the show. They're gas in my tank and great examples of the partnership uh, that keeps me going and the partnership we're trying to usher into this world. Well, tonight uh, I have as my guest uh, Isabella Price, and our topic is Sacred Love, Manifestations of Goddess, uh, which I believe is the title of her book. And we'll be delving into why the emergence of the Divine Feminine is so important today. Uh, And whether you're new to this or want a refresher or, you know, just like uh, hearing folks of like mind share the message of the Sacred Feminine Uh, you know, in uh, platforms like my radio show tonight. Stick with us tonight. We'll also be talking about what the dark-skinned mother teaches us at this time of great change. Um, And uh, also, too, you know, we'll talk, we'll have an overview of God as woman across cultures and religious traditions, uh, you know, as time permits. Also, uh, the sacred marriage is something Isabella and I will chat about, as well as pitfalls in relation to the concept of the divine feminine. But first, uh, I want to share uh, a word uh, with you from a longtime friend of the show, Joe Corson, and news uh, of her newest book. You know, for some time on the show, um, I had described the film Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. Joe has also written uh, a book, though, uh, that's, that's relatively new called uh, Celebrate uh, Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path, uh, which um, has just come out in a new expanded second edition. Uh, Feriferia calls itself a love culture for wilderness. Feriferia teaches you... Um, uh, about the fairy spirits of the land and the stars around you, and it aims to really create uh, a paradise or sanctuary all over the earth. Uh, it's rooted in ancient Crete, the Eleusin mysteries, troubadour practices, and the megalithic traditions. Uh, Feriferia celebrates the goddess as the merry maiden called Cori. Uh, uh, with laughter and play, they say that Cori carries keys to the future. And here are some quotes from John Mankey about Celebrate Wildness. Uh, Jason has been involved with paganism for the last 20 years and has spent the last 10 of those as a speaker, writer, and high priest. Here's what he had to say about uh, uh, Celebrate Wildness. And I quote, I began wildness reluctantly, but within 15 minutes I was all in and found myself absolutely entranced by its pages. 
Some of that is no doubt due to the beautiful work of Fred Adams that just about leaps off the page. Why aren't all the images in this book available as fine quality prints to hang around my ritual space? But this book is more than the art. It's wonderfully written and really serves as a comprehensive how-to on feria. That's a lot of great history. There's a lot of great history in here as well, but it's the doing and the philosophies that grabbed me. I was worried I'd find feriferia remote and hard to understand or rather dated as a philosophy, and I'll happily admit to being completely wrong. I found so much of my own belief within the pages of wildness that I'm actively planning to incorporate some of it into my coven work. Fred and Svetlana's vision from 50 years ago is just as urgent and as beautiful today as it was back then. The Feriferian vision as it relates to the Wheel of the Year is one I think most pagans would benefit from. Celebrate Wildness is a true hardcover book printed on heavy paper with images of the goddess, photos, symbols, and diagrams on almost every page. And it would make a fabulous gift, if not have one for your own library. And it's available from the Farah Feria website. And I'll spell that for you. It's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And that is dot org. So I'll spell it one more time. You might want to go take a look at this website and see all the great stuff there. Farahferia dot org. F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. Uh, well, I want to tell you um, uh, that my presentation that I mentioned last week uh, for the Power of Partnership class I shared first with you uh, was very well received in the online class uh, that I'm taking. And as that cl- uh, class comes to a close, I'm actually starting another class offered by Rianne Eisler, Center for Partnership Studies, called the Caring Economics Advocate Program. Uh, I'll uh, I'll be able to speak in a lot more specific terms about why caring economics or smart business, because you know uh, so many people are only concerned about the bottom line instead of morality or people's quality of life. And if you're interested in hearing that presentation, uh, just listen to last week's show. Uh, my guest was uh, Shauna Ora Knight. We were talking about pagan leadership. And uh, it was in that uh, that show that I actually talked about um, the the perils of corporate, uh, corporate media and uh, what a threat it is to our democracy and talked about how uh, we get such clarity of it uh, as we go through this uh, presidential campaign. Uh, speaking of which, um, I wonder if you heard Bernie Sanders on Fox News this week. I think it might have been Monday night. I was so proud of him when Brett Baer asked him, so where, did this, where does this right of health care f- for everyone come from? And, you know, Bernie didn't miss a beat. He said it comes from being a human being. Well, I got to tell you, cheers just went up from the audience. Uh, it was so awesome. And what a guy. You know, it's no wonder Gloria Steinem uh, officially called him 
uh, a woman years ago because he does uh, embody these feminist partnership values. You know, the establishment, the corporate-owned media, you know, they're doing their best to marginalize Bernie. They're having media blackouts of huge rallies. Uh, I've actually taken to tweeting the on-screen personalities, calling them corporate tools and, and telling them shame. Uh, you know, I'm, you know me, I'm outspoken, and, you know, and I encourage you to do the same. Imagine, imagine, if you will, for just a moment, if they actually covered Bernie Sanders fairly, if, if they did it in an unbiased way, if they talked about his growing popularity, about the enthusiasm that he's generating all around the country and all around the world. You know, today I watched a video from a march in Sweden of women and men who were out there marching for Bernie Sanders and saying that they're feeling the burn. I mean, it was it was incredible. You can see it on my Facebook page if uh, if you want to look at it and uh, share it around. Um, you know, it, but the corporate media, you know, they're afraid of his popularity. They want to keep up the narrative, uh, you know, the misinformation, the lies that he's unelectable, despite the fact that the polls show he can beat Trump and all the other Republicans by a wider margin than Hillary can, and people overwhelmingly trust him more than Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's in the polls. They trust him 80%, and they trust her 20%. I mean, seriously. Do we want to have a president in the White House that people trust 20%? But no matter, uh, Bernie's honesty and his integrity are winning over the people, and what a phenomenal win in Michigan last night. If Hillary had come from behind and had such a huge upset as Bernie had, there would have been a ticker tape parade. More and more people are feeling the burn, and it is heating up and getting more intense. You know, no one expected him to win Michigan last night, but he closed a 20-point gap of Hillary's lead and won by two points. And the coming state primaries are Bernie-friendly, so we're expecting with a lot of hard work that all of his volunteers out here like me and no doubt a lot of you are doing, he is going to pull out a lot more important wins. The narrative is already starting to change just with this win of Michigan. Imagine when he gets more of these big states, uh, more of these wins under his belt. I can imagine the establishment is going to really pile on now with the lies and the mischaracterizations, which is why I'm fighting back in my own way. Besides talking about this here and doing phone banking and volunteering and donating, I'm booking a guest here on the show very soon that will discuss the rise of corporate-owned media, how it came about, why it's so detrimental to our democracy, and what, if anything, we can do about it. Because no matter who your candidate is, whether you're for Hillary or Bernie or, heaven forbid, if some of you out there or my listeners are for Trump, don't you want to know if you're being lied to and why? You don't want to have your head buried in the sand and the narrative controlled by corporations, do you? Don't you want to make your own decisions based on the facts instead of be manipulated? I doubt if you're listening to my show, you want to have your your head buried in the sand. So as I've said, um, you know, we're more likely to be damaged or hurt by a corporation than we are a terrorist. And this, you know, these media-owned 
these these corporate owned media outlets or another example of that you know look how they're destroying uh, corporations are destroying the environment you know there was a story on uh, CBS News just this morning about how the Audi car makers knew about a defect in their cars that a $2 part would fix, but they didn't fix it. And there was a story about this man whose uh, child was crippled when the front seat of the car slammed back into the back seat upon collision. You know, I'm sure you know about other ways corporations kill people for profits, and not intentionally, of course. But whether it's Big Pharma, Wall Street, the oil and gas industry with fracking, poisoning the oceans and the rivers or the air, I could go on and on. Even people I used to love watching regularly like Rachel Maddow are falling prey to being corporate-controlled tools, presumably to keep their on-air presence and not lose their jobs like Ed Schultz and Melissa Harris-Perry, who was shoved out. And don't forget Keith Olbermann. Remember him from years back? I loved him. I have his bobblehead doll sitting on my desk. If you were a follower of Keith, he was suspended from MSNBC for a short period of time and fined, I believe, for just making a private public, uh, I'm sorry, a, a private campaign donation, which he didn't even make public. And that's how MSNBC was a few years ago. But now, daily, daily, they prop up Hillary, they don't ask her the hard questions, and they, you know, over and over marginalize Bernie. I gave the statistics last week, and a study done of media overall, uh, Donald Trump was mentioned over 185,000 times to Hillary's 87,000 mentions and Bernie's 29,000 mentions, most of which, uh, when Bernie was mentioned, the comments were disparaging, mischaracterizations, or outright fear-mongering by people like Chris Matthews on Hardball. You know, one of their favorite things to do is mischaracterize democratic socialism and and act like what Bernie is talking about is socialism. And they're two different things. But the media, uh, you know, even though they, I presume they know that they're vastly different, they, and instead of informing people and letting people make up their own minds, they spew disinformation. And how is that better than Fox News when they go and do that? You know, CNN and MSNBC and ABC, all of the corporate-owned media are going down a very low, low road. Journalistic integrity is gone. I thought maybe there was some left, but I just don't know anymore. And on the subject of journalistic integrity, please watch the new movies out this year. They just came to my attention because although they didn't win, they were mentioned for Academy Awards. One is Truth and the other is Trumbo. Truth and Trumbo, two different movies. In entertaining ways, they show how the news media and writers have been silenced by corporations and or ignorant bigots. You know, so relevant. You know, these they take cases in history not that long ago, and, you know, it just as well be today because the same sort of things are still going on. So that's Truth and Trumbo, great movies. And while I'm on the subject of movies, 
do yourself a favor. Don't miss Michael Moore's new documentary that's out. Very funny and informative called Where to Invade Next shows everyone how other countries not like the United States, how these other countries use their tax dollars to better the quality of life of their citizens and their communities rather than spending it all on the military-industrial complex or corporate warfare or tax cuts for the rich like they do here in the United States. You can see how Americans are really, as my mother would say it, screwed and tattooed. Yep, that's what she called it. We are being screwed and tattooed by uh, multinational and American corporations. And, you know, when somebody says, you Bernie people just want free stuff, well, you tell them to watch this movie. We aren't looking for free stuff. We're looking for our tax dollars to be spent on education, infrastructure, research and development for disease, making sure kids don't go to bed hungry, that the elderly and veterans don't have to live under bridges, so elderly people don't have to cut their medicine to make it stretch until you know, the next Social Security check. That's where I want my money spent, not on bullets and bombs and to fat, fatten some rich cat's investment portfolio. Some of these people already have more money than they can spend in a lifetime. It's about time... You know, they benefit from society. It's about time they pay their fair share. Okay, enough said, enough said. But you see how all these subjects are linked together, don't you? You know, I, I, I hope you found this all useful and interesting. And as always, uh, I welcome your comments, and uh, I hope you'll send me an email or, um, you know, a comment on the show. All right, so... Uh, we're going to get to uh, my wonderful guest tonight, Il- Isabella Price, and I want to introduce you to her uh, by way of her bio, and then we're going to start our chat on uh, sacred love, manifestations of the goddess. So uh, so you'll know a bit about Isabella and uh, her expertise in the subject. She's an international speaker and educator and the author of Sacred Love, Manifestations of the Goddess, which is part of the broader book series, One Truth, Many Paths, on the Unitive uh, Spirituality. She holds as uh, an MA in the Humanities from the University of Zurich, Switzerland. For nearly 25 years, she's been successfully teaching classes and workshops at universities, colleges, and numerous religious venues. She's also a certified SQ21 spiritual intelligence coach. She'll have to tell us what that is. And she teaches meditation to veterans suffering from PTSD and other community members. I want to give you her website, uh, and we'll ask her to tell us, uh, you know, share it again before she leaves tonight. But uh, you'll have it at least once now. Uh, it's one truth dash many paths dot com. One truth dash many paths dot com. And Isabella, I welcome you to the show. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Karen, and I'm really honored and delighted to be uh, on the show with you. Thank you for inviting me, and really looking forward to our chat. Well, I've been looking forward to our chat, too. And remind me, Isabella, are you uh, actually calling from, uh, from Europe, or are you in the United States now? 
No, I'm calling you from the Bay Area, um, and we've had all these rains here, so everything is now green with the rolling hills. I just went for a short walk, and it's beautiful here. So it's, uh, you know, I live in Walnut Creek, not too far from Berkeley. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope California, with this rain that that we've been getting, I hope we make at least a small dent uh, in this horrible drought uh, that we're suffering with with climate change. So. Uh, That is definitely my prayer, too. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, we desperately need it. It's a pretty scary thing. Um, so let's uh, let's get to talking about your book, uh, Sacred Love: Manifestations mm-hmm. of the Goddess. Let's you know let's start at the beginning uh, because you know I always have new listeners and uh, uh, mm-hmm. some people may not have connected all the dots yet. Um, why don't you give us a brief overview of God as a woman uh, across cultures and religious traditions? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some of the symbols or themes or qualities of goddess. Yes. Absolutely. I'm happy to do that, Karen. And before I dive right in, I would like to just read a brief invocation of the goddess that I recently wrote, if that would be okay with you. Sure, go right ahead. Yep. You are the beauty and the majesty of the green earth, the tree, leaf, plant, river, lake, fir, Claw, fang, blood, and tears. You are the cosmic womb, birthing solar flares, swirling planets, stardust, atoms, photons, and cells. You are the ever-unfolding creative life force and the ecstatic dancer on the cremation grounds. You are the honored and the scorned, the whore and the holy, the wife and the virgin, the mother and the daughter. You are the first and the last. From you all things emerge, and to you they must return. Mm, So lovely, so lovely. I'm so glad you started the show out like that. you know, it's like inviting uh, her and all her symbols and all her essences, uh, you know, sort of sets the tone and invites her in yes. to be with us. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. And I just felt the calling to share it because, as you said, it's just really about inviting her presence into the field, the collective field that we all co-create together. So basically, to give you a brief overview of God as a woman, uh, most of us, um, I assume, grew up with um, that notion of God as an all-powerful, transcendental father high up in the heavens ruling over us and punishing us if we don't abide by his laws. And, of course, this is a notion that emerged with the three Abrahamic religions, focusing on the worship of the one and only God. And so it's only fairly recent that we rediscovered God as a woman. 
And you probably remember uh, that in 1976, a feminist scholar, Merlin Stone, published a book with the provocative and juicy title, When God Was a Woman, which of course created a steer, not surprisingly. And so Stone really uh, brought this notion into the collective awareness of a broader audience, at least that was the case back in the 70s. And then, of course, there were many other women pioneers and feminist scholars who contributed to the reemergence of God as a woman. Um, for example, as you will know, archaeologist Maria Jim Butas uh, definitely was a major authority for the goddess quest, and she excavated numerous female figurines that dated back 20,000 years before the common area into a period that we know commonly as the stone period or uh, prehistory, which means the time before the writing systems emerged. And some of these uh, female figurines were found at entrances of cave shelters. Many had exaggerated hips large buttocks and pendulous breasts, which suggest a veneration for the life-giving powers of the female body. And we have to remember that at that time, the survival of our ancestors was constantly at stake. And so, of course, they were in awe and wonderment at the great miracle of new life and birth. And so it's not really surprising that they imagined the universe as an all-giving, all-caring mother from whose womb new life emerges and to which life eventually returns. Yeah. So the mother I, I mean, eats I, I life and imagine, takes you know, life. When, mm -hmm. when, we, when we think back of, you know, about these people in ancient times, mm -hmm. I mean, we have to, I think, give ourselves uh, a moment to think about context. Uh, because you can imagine infant mortality yeah. must have been very high. Uh, yes. You know, the, the idea of life giver, of, of women who could bleed without dying. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, these were really powerful things. And even the, the Venuses that we have now uh, are even older. I mean, they're thirty and 40,000 years old. And, you know, we have images like the Bearcat Ram, I think, out of Israel, if memory serves. Some people think that might be 200,000 years old. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people who have been looking at this idea of, uh, of, of, you know, God is a woman for a very, very long time before they ever started thinking about God as a male. Yes. And it's actually, I'm so glad that you, you pointed that out because it's still surprising to me that today, um, 40 years later, you know, after we had these first, you know, women pioneers really reminding us of the worship of, of God as mother, that it's still so many people, it doesn't really seem to be in their awareness so much. Is that, it's as if it's partly at least um, kind of being covered up, at least when you look at mainstream Christianity, for example. It's still, you know, in our culture, not necessarily a given that everybody is so aware of it and also sensitive um, enough to really appreciate, you know, what, what, we, 
what we can learn, you know, from from the great mother and and all the inspirations that we we can draw, you know, from these um, ancient cultures. And of course, you know, there is much more that I would love to share um, about that. But um, what really um, always intrigues me greatly is that, um, you know, these goddesses really governed the cycle of birth, death, and regeneration. And as you know, Karen, today we have such a hard time uh, talking um, about mortality, about death. I mean, just go to a party and start to talk about death and then see how popular you're going to be. <laughs> it seems like it's such a taboo. Uh, people just don't want to talk about it. They are afraid. And yet at that time it was just part of the natural right. cycle. Right. And, and well, you know, you, I mean, you know, Isabella, if I can just interject here, I interviewed <laughs> someone who um, uh, I think she put together the anthology or maybe she was in the anthology uh, Rule of Moors. And I think the anthology was about how patriarchy came about. And um, I'm trying to remember who I was talking to now. I want to say it might have been Joan Marler or Christina Biaghi. Uh, my memory's a little clouded, but the point is uh, th- this you just said about people don't want to face their mortality. Um, that was one of the reasons that she gave to shift away from goddess to God because humanity didn't want to face the cycles of life. They didn't want to face right. humanity. Somehow this idea of um you know this new idea of god where you would reside in the heavens later you know uh and, and that sort of thing that was a way to cheat death if that makes any sense um and so you know that's just one of the theories about how we lost goddess and ended up with a patriarchal god Yes, absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. It's just like denying a big part of life because life and death are actually closely intertwined. In fact, I would go so far to say that um, death makes life possible. I mean, just look at uh, you know the jungle, for example. Foliage falls to the ground. It decomposes and it becomes nutrients for new plant growth to sprout. I mean, it's just so natural. And in all the indigenous traditions, you know, um, young men and women are, are initiated, you know, into these kind of things. But we have really lost that connection, the connection to nature, of course. You know, that's, that's really what it boils down to. There is this collective alienation. And I think this is really what, what also the indigenous cultures can teach us. And, of course, then, you know, the, the, the goddess wisdom traditions. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so why? Um, is, is, so did you want to mention maybe a couple of the, of the you know, aside, uh, mm-hmm. uh, like maybe some of the qualities of goddess or maybe yes. a couple of the symbols? Yes, absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. So, um, you know, during the prehistoric period, which, you know, is also known as the Paleolithic and Neolithic, um, some of these goddesses, and I find that interesting, did not... Um, exclusively appear as women. Some of them were hybrids, so uh, they were half woman, half animal, mostly snakes and birds. And so Jim Butas calls them, you know, the snake goddess and the bird goddess. Why snake and birds? Well, if you think what the snake does, it sheds its skin periodically. So it's not surprising that the snake became 
a symbol of immortality, again, of the, the cycle of life, death, and regeneration. And the bird, of course, lays eggs, and then new life hatches from it. But interesting is really that the egg is a very ancient symbol that we find in all the cosmologies and creation mythologies across cultures. It's, it's the primordial cosmic egg that floats on the watery abyss that is at the beginning of time. And so um, the bird uh, goddess is really the primordial mother, the creatress, as she's uh, referred to. And that's something as, that we really need to remember. And I just want to also, uh, you know, mention that when we moved from the prehistoric period to the great civilizations that emerged roughly around 3000 BC, we can see how powerful some of these pre-Christian mother goddesses were. I would like to give you some examples from the inscriptions that really shows you, um, you know, something about their functions and, and, and you know, that they, they were almighty. So, for example, um, <clears throat> the, the goddess Inanna Ishtar in ancient Babylonia was uh, frequently referred to as the goddess of the universe and queen of heaven in some of these inscriptions going back to the second millennium. And as you know, queen of heaven is a title that Mother Mary later on assumed um, in the Christian tradition, at least after the assumption became official church doctrine. And when we look at Isis of Egypt and some of the uh, records praising her. It's stunning to read, and I quote here from Deep, 14th century BC. It says, In the beginning there was Isis. Sounds just like Genesis, right? And then it says, Isis, oldest of the old. She was the goddess from whom all becoming arose. She was the great lady, the mistress of the two lands of Egypt, upper and lower Egypt. And she was the unique in all her great and wonderful works. She was a wiser magician and more excellent than any other god. And she's in fact even called savior of the human race in one of the hymns of ancient Egypt. And you all know, of course, that savior of the human race was a title that Jesus Christ later assumed. But it's mm -hmm. so amazing to see how all these themes, functions, and symbols were co-opted uh, by some of the monotheistic traditions. And so people always believe, well, you know, that was that came up with Christianity, but they don't realize <laughs> that these have very ancient roots going back thousands of years. And don't you think the very fact that they did co-opt so much, I mean, because Christianity is just, you know, filled with plagiarism, plagi filled <laughs> with co-opting. You know, they're either stealing yeah. from, from the Jews or they're stealing from the pagans. And, um, you know, this, uh, you know, th this idea, uh, you know, it, it, of, of, of the mother, you know, they, they, I, on, on some level, even back then, they must have realized that people will not be able to do without the universal mother. You know, um, it's, it's almost like a primal 
a primal need that humanity has. You know, they they wouldn't be able to write her out of the picture. Or, uh, you know, Christianity came close, you know, I think with they they, they allowed us to have Mary, but, you mm-hmm. know, look at, you know, uh, yeah. you know, Mary is, you know, like I, uh, sort of like some of the other goddesses, I think, became under patriarchy. She's really... Uh, yeah. a, a shadow of her former glory. She's yes. not a whole woman. She's passive. Yes. She's benign, you know. Yes. That's a very good point. I'm actually glad you bring up Mary. Um, I mean, even though she has officially been elevated above, you know, what is referred to as so-called ordinary woman, whatever that means within the context of the church, but she's um, still not viewed as a goddess in her full right, and she's not on a par with the Trinity. You know, it's got mm-hmm. the Father, God, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, kind of gender right. neutral. So, as you said, she has uh, lost a lot of your ancient glory, and even though she's been bestowed the title Queen of Heaven, uh, but still, you know, I mean, shouldn't she at least be incorporated into the Trinity? I mean, wouldn't it just kind of be the more natural thing? And um, as you say also, a lot of her symbols, qualities, and functions um, go back to these ancient goddesses. If you'd like, I can share some specific examples that illuminate this this point even further. I mean, look at her um, halo of golden stars, you know, the crown. Well, that relates her to ancient pre-Christian goddesses like Inanna Ishtar, who was venerated as the Lady of the Zodiac, or, you know, Isis was related to the Sirius star. And other um, images show Mother Mary standing on a crescent moon. Well, the crescent moon is also a very ancient symbol of the uh, mother going back to the Paleolithic time with some of these goddess figurines holding a bison horn that is crescent-shaped at the entrance of shelters, as I mentioned earlier. Or, for instance, uh, you know, Mary as the great healer and miracle worker, people in, in the Middle Ages believe, you know, that milk from her breasts can cure diseases. Well, Egypt, uh, you know, and you go to Isis, was also venerated as that great healer and magician. As you know, she could cure uh, venomous snake bites, and women would pray to her when their kids were bitten by Scorpios. And then even even the grieving mother holding her son is a very ancient theme. It relates her to the Greek grandmother Demeter, who uh, lamented the loss of her daughter Persephone when she was abducted to the underworld by Hades. Well, there we also have the grieving mother. And then Marius, the intercessor for the souls of the dead, relates her to Inanna, who voluntarily embarked on a journey to the great below the underworld to be initiated into the mysteries of death. And the list goes on and on oh, and yeah. on. Even Mary as mother of the animals, you know, in some Renaissance paintings, she's depicted as mm-hmm. uh, being seated on a lion throne. Well, that relates her to the ancient lady of the beasts flanked by uh, lions. And we have Minoan seals from ancient Crete that show her, you know, standing on a mountaintop flanked by wild animals. So, I right. mean, the yeah. list and goes on and on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, you know, or, I mean, really, the, the <clears throat> goddess just sort of passed 
you know, I, I like to say the goddess just passed uh, their baton to Mary, you know, and Mary kept uh, the feminine alive in some form uh, until mm-hmm. we could reawaken, I think, the goddess and all of her fullness mm-hmm. now, you know. Um, yeah. You know, because in, uh, you know, Artemis of Ephesus, uh, I mean, let's not forget, I mean, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Right. Uh, I mean, there, uh, you know, the people ran Paul out of town on a rail because he was trying to get them to give up their goddess Artemis. And in the end, when, you know, pagans were threatened with death, uh, you know, they could either give up paganism and accept Christianity or die. Uh, people right. said, okay, you know, we'll we'll take your mother goddess and we'll call her Mary. But I'm sure it yes. was a very long time before, uh, you know, it was Mary that was fully in their hearts and minds. You know, Mary just, like I said, you know, took the baton from Artemis and, yeah. um, you know, a lot of her attributes and symbols and everything just... Uh, you know, moved right along from Artemis to Mary, like all the other goddesses you mentioned. So Yes, that is so true. And we can even see that uh, by the simple fact that a lot of Christian churches were built upon ancient shrines that uh, were dedicated to, uh, you know, different goddesses like, you know, Isis or, you know, the Guadalupe in the Americas that's built mm-hmm. on a on a shrine, um, you know, that was dedicated to Tonantzin, the ancient Aztec mother. I mean, there's so many examples, and, and I think it's, it's, it's quite obvious, or at least most scholars would agree, that there is also a direct connection between Isis of Egypt and, and Mother Mary in many of her functions and symbols. Sure, so absolutely. Definitely a continuity. But again, Mary, of course, is, is, is kind of subdued, and then there's, of course, the whole issue with her perpetual virginity, which, which kind of, you know, how, how could a woman who gives birth relate to that? I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, the ancient yeah. goddesses have powers that were all encompassing it included sex sacred sexuality, uh, the, the creator's function, and, you know, we'll hopefully have a chance to dive into some of the dark-skinned goddesses like Carly, who are extremely well, powerful icons. That's where I thought we'd go next, Isabella, because we've already been talking 20 minutes, if you can believe it. Uh, and we've got about <laughs> Hard 20 to believe. I know, I know, the time just flies. Um, so we've got about 20 minutes left. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the dark-skinned mother and what she teaches us at this time of change. And then we'll see where, we, uh, where we're at with time, and we'll see what, which other of the points um, we'll go to next. Yes. That sounds great. So basically the dark skin mothers originate from Africa and again um, some of these goddesses I mentioned like Isis, Inanna, Ishtar, Demeter all had dark skinned manifestations in ancient times. And so generally speaking we can say that the dark mother embodies the great dissolution. That means physical death or biological death and ego death. Um, Let me just give you some examples to uh, clarify on that. When we look at Kali, um, who is still a very popular goddess in the Shakta tradition of India, and she's often referred to as the dark one, 
And in her fierce and terrifying manifestation, she appears as dancing ecstatically on the cremation grounds amidst funeral pyres. And she's worshipped as the great devourer of all life as it eventually returns to her. Um, and uh, it, it's really interesting, you know, when you look at, at how she's depicted. Now, here she's the fierce, terrifying mother with blood dripping from her tongue, and she's adorned by a garland of skulls. And, of course, for us Westerners, this can be a very shocking um, icon because we, we don't have anything comparable in our culture. Well, you could maybe say the Medusa and the Gorgon, but still, she doesn't have the prominence that Kali enjoys in, in India. And so um, we, we really have to also remember that in India, Kali is not just worshipped as the great devourer and mother of that, but she's really also viewed as the primordial creatress whose cosmic womb brings forth the entire manifest universe and all of life. So she's what uh, in India they call Shakti, the creative life force that pervades everything, including us. And um, so in India, we can really see, especially with Kali, how the goddess represents the ever-evolving cycle of creation, preservation, and dissolution in the Shakta tradition. And what's also interesting about Kali is that um, she is also the one who slays our ego, you know, all these false layers of identification, the false self concept, and the, 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 the skulls that she wears, um, you know, being part of her garland around her um, neck, um, do really ultimately symbolize all our illusions and finite attachment that she shatters if we wholeheartedly worship her. So it's really about letting go of what doesn't serve us any longer so that we can evolve psychologically and spiritually. And that includes fears, you know, desires, greeds, all what prevents us from evolving. And so Kali slays that, and the garland of schools really represents these illusions and attachments. So the goddess is really in charge of ego death, and she assists us in overcoming our, our fears. And she's often depicted naked because she symbolizes the naked truth, which is, of course, the supreme truth. She shows us who we truly are as human beings beyond yeah. all the illusions. And that's a very fascinating symbolism. We don't have such an icon of the Divine Mother in Western culture. You know, I'm surprised more uh, more goddesses don't, you know, more of the dark goddesses don't have as their symbol the mirror, you know, uh, because that, uh, well, in you know, in those times they didn't have mirrors. Uh, I mean, that's probably uh, that's probably a point. But, you know, but that's sort of a, a, a good symbol to think about as you describe the dark goddess who forces us to sort of look within, you know, yeah. um, it's sort of like what we do uh, at the end of the year. You know, it's it sort of runs parallel to that because at the end of the year is when we're supposed to take stock and 
look within and see how mm-hmm. we were successful or where maybe we, you know, didn't meet our challenges and, um, you know, and, and mm-hmm. just, you know, sort of be honest with ourselves yeah. so that we can maybe come back the following year and uh, be an even better version of ourselves. Right, yes. And to do that, uh, you just said, Karen, also requires that we face our so-called psychological shadow issues, to use a term from Jungian psychology. And you can see that a lot of these shadow issues are now coming to the surface, both individually and collectively. They are being played out. And this is really the dark mother at work as a catalyst. You know, just think of an chemical process she's bringing these fears you know that were latent to the surface so that we can face it like holding a mirror in front of us and so that we may go right through the eye of the storm and process um, these issues and may heal these issues rather than bypassing them or repressing them because as you know that's just not going to do it and so this is really what the dark mother stands for she represents unknown territory, which can be frightening, you know, to to many of us. So it's just like going into a dark cave, you know, into the womb of the earth and the wisdom that it holds. And when you are in darkness, you are completely faced with your fears and you don't know where the next step will take you if you've ever been in a dark cave. Right, so that right. means you have to come to terms with these fears, with these issues, and you have to trust that you will be guided step by step and that you're held and embraced by divine love, by the love of, of the great mother. So um, again, the dark mothers, for me as I understand, them are really a symbol for inner transformation and for the wisdom and illumination that can be gained by going into the dark, into mm-hmm. the unknown, and transcending our fears. That's really what it's what it's all about. So they help us and, to awaken spiritually. <clears throat> and and you know if I can kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe draw some parallels here, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of maybe make yeah. it relevant to what's happening in the world and what's going yes. on uh, right now across the globe. Uh, you know, maybe it's just because I'm so focused on this presidential election and all <laughs> of the problems yeah. out there in the world that we have to solve, you know, from income inequality to climate change to, right. uh, you know, just uh, everything, you know, uh, campaign finance reform, uh, you know, uh, disease, war, all of this stuff. You know, we, we felt like when the age of Pisces was over and we entered into the age of Aquarius, you know, we were going we, we to have a, a, a paradigm shift. And, you know, I think maybe part of transforming and moving into that shift is being willing to look at what didn't work, uh, you know, meaning yeah. these old right. ideas of society, you know, maybe to some of us, like me, it's, you know, it's capitalism, it's uh, dominator, yeah. uh, you know, paradigms, yes. like Rhea and Eisler talks about in Chalice and the Blade. Mm-hmm. You know, it's being mm-hmm. willing to face that the way we've been doing it for decades, for hundreds of years, you know, the exploitation of Mm. women, all of this stuff, that it doesn't work anymore. And even though we know it doesn't work, it's still 
scary to step into a new paradigm of something different. You know, it's kind of like the yeah. abused wife. You know, uh, she's been abused by, you know, and, and, you know, maybe she's in a domestic violence situation and she's been beat up by this horrible husband yeah. she's got. But she doesn't always leave because at least she knows what she's getting, you know, where to step out on her own into the world all by herself, um, right. you know, that's that's pretty scary to start something anew. Yeah. And um, I don't know, I, I just kind of see the parallels as yeah. we're, yes. you know, trying to create a new world. Uh, we don't all know what it's going to look like. Right. We don't have all the answers. Right. There's not always yes. a clear road map. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying, Karen, and it's so true. And that's why I actually think that especially dark-skinned mother goddesses really are a symbol of these massive changes that are now going on on the planet, and that can be overwhelming to many of us at times. And as you say, you know, all the chaos, the conflicts, you know, racial conflicts, um, you know, wars, um, the the, the the horrible inequality be, between the wealthy and the poor, all these things, it's, it's as if evolution is moving towards a breaking point and we realize the old paradigms, you know, the hyper-masculine, patriarchal, hierarchical and authoritarian paradigms that have mostly created this mess just don't work any longer. We have to change, you know, we have to make an evolutionary leap uh, to really usher in, you know, this, this, this new vision that we're all yearning, you know, to, yeah. to manifest. And we all have to do our part, especially as women. We have to stand up. We have to uh, speak our truth, you know, forcefully, even though it might not be necessarily comfortable. But if we feel called to do that, we just have to do that. And that's what the fierce mother also teaches us. But it's a fierceness that's rooted in love. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a fierceness that's rooted in aggression or, or um, you know, a hatred. That would be counterproductive. I feel it has to be a fierceness that's ultimately rooted in love. And if we yeah, speak our love. truth yeah. from that place, tough love, exactly, then I think we women can make uh, and will make uh, actually great contributions. And I, I really trust the process. In fact, we are already making it as we are talking. Yeah, and I and I believe it's also our like-minded brothers because you know there's so many allies out there who are right. you know fem feminist men and men who are of this yeah. mindset and you know you just answered a question for me I was actually puzzling over I have to give you credit Isabella um, <laughs> you know we were talking uh, in my class about people who act against their own interests who vote against their economic interests. Um, I th I think, and we were saying, why, why, you know, why do these people do this? Isn't it, you know, can't they see it's logical to choose something that offers them something better? Are they crazy? And I think right. I just, I think I just got it. I think when you said, um, I forgot how you said it now, but but the the way it formulated in my mind was, um, it's fear. You know, they are accustomed yeah. to the way yeah. it is. And even if it's not good, um, it's it's something that they know. It's something that they're familiar right. with. Right. 
So, right. so yeah, I mean, it, 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 that they're like the abused wife too, you know, um, yeah. uh, you know, voting against yeah. their economic interests, not voting for people who <laughs> yeah. would make their quality of life better, um, simply because they don't have it within themselves to um, to make a change, because change change is scary for some people. So it's exactly, as you say, it's that, uh, you know, pathological, psychological pattern that's, of course, a result of brainwashing and conditioning that's been going on for so long that people rather choose to stay in, you know, the comfort zone, even though it's suffering and pain, rather than making the leap into unknown territory. And fear paralyzes. We just yeah. know that. It's a very low vibrational frequency. And so there is so many anxieties, so many people don't know what's going on right now. And it's, yeah, it, it's, I, I will believe that's the main main thing that's holding them back and I also want to pick up something that you said earlier about the partnership between conscious men and women I also see us working together and participating you know in uh, the the evolutionary process you know of history and culture Uh, I see us women as feminine co-creators together with conscious men in partnership and not in confrontation because ultimately we need to do the work together. We need to transcend these dualistic notions of, you know, us against them. I mean, that's not helpful. That's why I really emphasize it has to be rooted in love, our, our commitment and our dedication, because I don't think it will be working otherwise. At least that's my personal point of view. No, I, I, get, I get that, you know. Um, and, and sometimes it's hard, though, because, for instance, you know, uh, uh, no, we, we want to come from a place of love. You know, we don't want the us and them um, uh, sort of uh, paradigm to be set up. But by the same token, let, well, I'll just take the example of, um, you know, in, in the class that I'm, Rianne Eisler class I'm taking, it's about, you know, partnership and stuff. And, you know, when Rianne teaches, you know, don't set up um, that duality, you know, left, right, liberal, conservative. However, what do you do? How do you not set that up when one particular group, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, fundamentalists or whether it be Republicans, you know, they uh, they have a propensity uh, for mm-hmm. wanting this authoritarian, oppressive, right. control-oriented yeah. uh, dogma and uh, politics. And how, it, it's very difficult, I think, to... Um, not see it as us and them when uh, they're fighting against everything we're trying to usher into the world to make it a better place. Now, I'm sure they think the same thing. You know, they're trying to keep Mm. the world, you know, in the 18 or 1900s, you know, because that's what they're comfortable with and they think that's what's best for everyone. Um, But it's it's hard. It's hard not to have an us versus them mentality. Yes. 
No, I, I agree with you, of course. And in politics, in the trenches, it plays itself out on a daily basis. But he, see, here are just uh, worldviews that are somewhat incompatible. And, of course, you know, these this, this different worldviews have certain values that go with it, like, you know, the, the either-or uh, paradigm. And, and that's, that's still what a fairly large percentage of the world population, um, you know, is, is basically... Uh, um, thinking in terms of, of that, but um, the thing is, it really the change will happen within each one of us. It's really a change in consciousness that has to happen for us to make the evolutionary leap and and really create a more holistic uh, vision, you know, with with holistic paradigms and and values. And and the thing is, of course, you know, it's it's easy, especially in day-to-day -day politics now with the elections heating up. It's so easy to get sucked, you know, into that, uh, you know, again, this this us versus them, you know, these dualistic notions. But let's not forget the Buddha, you know, certainly, um, you know, had a supreme wisdom. He taught 2,500 years ago that ultimately the supreme truth always lies beyond the polarities, uh, beyond, you know, entrenched positions, even though, of course, you know, you're fighting the right fight, you know, you want to, uh, you know, health care for everybody. This is all important, but we should not lose ourselves. We should still keep uh, that, that overall perspective. And in the end, we cannot change somebody else's worldview. You know, that's the way they're wired. That's their level of consciousness. So we can talk at them they are just not going to receive our input and so so that's that's where you know we we just have to follow our inner calling but you will not be able to change somebody's level of consciousness unless they do their inner work of transformation right. which we're all called to do at this critical juncture in time and history Right. Well, Isabella, we're about uh, out of time, and uh, but you know, I want to give you the last word here. Um, <laughs> uh, you. Uh, you know, we've, we've chatted for about forty minutes uh, or, or more, and yes. um, I, I, is there anything else you'd like to say that maybe I haven't asked? Um, well, maybe uh, I would like to just conclude again with. Um, Something, you know, for um, our listeners uh, that they can take with them. And um, I would like to uh, invite you to take uh, some time over the next few days or weeks and reflect on the goddess in your personal life. Um, what is your experience, relationship with the goddess? Um, how has she shown up? Has she come maybe in a dream? Or maybe you heard a message that came from her? Keep a little journal and see if you can tune in and pay attention to whatever comes up um, and see which one of the many images, symbols, and themes of the goddess resonates most deeply with you at this particular stage in your life. Let's say if you are at a later stage in your life, you might want to tune into the qualities and energies of some of the wisdom goddesses, such as Athena, Hecate, or Sarasvati in India. And if what I shared resonates with you, then, of course, you can always uh, read my book, Sacred Love, Manifestations of the Goddess, 
um, that you can order uh, on Amazon, and you know I, I will give you uh, my website again where you can see it. I mean, I could just barely scratch the surface. There is so much more in the book. Um, it's very rich, and so this was just a taste, <laughs> a foretaste, yeah. so to speak. Well, I mean, you know, it's like when somebody <clears throat> says, "Tell me about God." You know, can you do it in a conversation? No, it takes <laughs> right. a lifetime. No way. <laughs> so, oh, yes. It's a never-ending journey up to our very last breath. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For yeah. sure. Yes. For but sure. Isabella, you have done you have done a great job tonight. Uh, I you know I I applaud you. You gave a lot of information in a short period of time, and uh, I was a great refresher for me. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me as a guest, and it was a great pleasure chatting with you. And yes, I, uh, if you are curious about sacred love, then please visit my website um, at www.onetruth-manypath.com. I spell it O N E T R U T H hyphen M A N Y dot com, and uh, you can also contact me um, through my website. I do um, offer a limited number of private consultations. Uh, if you're curious to dive a little bit deeper into uh, what the goddess can teach us on so many levels, I invite you to uh, contact me through my website. And again, the title of the book is Sacred Love, Manifestations of the Goddess. Well, that's very generous, Isabella. Thank you so much. And uh, You're um, you know, and, and I would just invite listeners if you do go to her website and speak to Isabella, please mention that uh, uh, you heard about her here on the show. That would be great. Um, and well, thank you, Isabella, for a wonderful and rich conversation. Uh, like I said, it was a great refresher for me, and even some fresh new insights. Um, so, oh, you know, good great. luck with the book. And um, are, are you going to be teaching or speaking any anywhere anytime soon? Um, well, um, right now in the planning stages of that, but you know, I would definitely post on my website if okay. I have something coming up. And uh, again, thank you so much for inviting me to your show. And I also wish you <laughs> Godspeed on all your many projects because I know how involved you are. And these are all wonderful causes. And I wholeheartedly resonate with it, Karen. Again, oh. thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thank you. Isabella, it is my pleasure. Have a wonderful week and good night. And you too. Thank you. Good night. Bye bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. I I have to say, I usually enjoy all of my guests, and uh, I guess it makes sense that I do. After all, I invite them on uh, and vet their material before they come on, so I guess it's no wonder that I have such fun with all the people that come on the show. Um, but I do want to say uh, that I won't be on the air next week. Uh, I'm headed for Lancaster, Pennsylvania uh, for the weekend, uh, actually Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'm going to be giving some talks and workshops. 
Uh, so I am taking my usual Wednesday night when I usually do the show. Uh, I'm taking off to pack and prepare. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of archives to listen to. Uh, I'm sure you haven't listened to all of them. Uh, if, you're, if you are of a political bent, uh, might I suggest uh, looking up the interview I did with Richard Wolf on uh, economics, uh, which was in December. And uh, it will tell you how we got Social Security, which just might surprise you. Because when I heard Richard Wolf talk on PBS, I was surprised. Because you know what? That wasn't something we learned in history. And he'll tell you why we didn't learn it in history. Very interesting. Uh, And it kind of goes back to that movie I suggested you see earlier, Trumbo. Uh, Yeah, all the the dots start to connect. Um, Let's see, uh, and I will be back on the air on March 23rd with the famous Muslim feminist uh, writer and author Ajra Namani, who you've no doubt seen uh, making all the rounds on television speaking about Islam. Uh, she actually proposed that there be a manifesto uh, for women in the boardroom and in the bedroom so that uh, women, uh, Muslim women would be able to protect their rights to equality and pleasure. So that should be a fun and enlightening conversation indeed. Uh, don't miss it. And um, speaking about fun and enlightening things, I want to remind you about uh, Sage Woman magazine. You know, we don't have many goddess magazines out there. Uh, We used to. I remember when I started doing this in the 90s, we had several to choose from. I think Circle Sanctuary is gone now. There used to be um, a Sacred History magazine that has has gone. Uh, I can't even remember the titles now. I know there was the wonderful Goddessing uh, newspaper that Willow Lamont put together. Um, and, you know, thank goodness for Sage Woman magazine, uh, celebrating the goddess and every woman for over 30 years. Uh, Sage Woman magazine brings the wisdom of women's spirituality to over 10,000 women every 88-page issue. Uh, so a shout-out goes to Ann Niven, the uh, tenacious editor of uh, Sage Woman magazine. And uh, Ann has offered a special uh, you can actually get a free sample issue uh, if you call their toll-free number and mention uh, that you heard about this on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Um, here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine, I said you'd get a free issue if you called in. Uh, so if you want to grab a pen, um, you can find Sage Woman on their website, which is sagewoman.com, or if you've grabbed that pen now, uh, the toll-free number is triple eight Sage Woman, or uh, I'll give you the numbers triple eight seven two four three nine six six. That's triple eight seven two four three nine six six. And um, I hope uh, maybe you've been enjoying my audio book series uh, free on YouTube. Uh, if you're just finding out about it, then um, go to YouTube and simply put in the search box. Uh, Goddess Calling audio book series. I'm about to uh, post another one probably after I get back from Pennsylvania or maybe the first week in April. Uh, March turned out to be a really busy month. I'm glad there's a lot of uh, shows in the archives that you can uh, go back and listen to. Um, 
And I also have some things to share with you from my wonderful roving reporter, Pat. Um, she uh, sent me some things to share. Uh, and, Pat, thank you. I love you dearly. Uh, these little news clips that uh, she thought uh, my audience would be interested in. Uh, this first one is an article about a result due uh, to the foundings of the CLUE study. Um, Anyway, she says the UK community arts program called Coexist is offering female employees paid time off to recover from menstrual pains. Interesting. Uh, Baxter told the Huffington Post UK that she believes the policy will ultimately make the company more productive. Quote, when women are having their periods, they are in a winter state when they need to regroup, keep warm, and nourish their bodies. When a woman is in her spring phase, immediately after a period, she can do the work of three women. There's a similar push in the UK where sanitary products are classified as luxury items and subject to a 5% tax Yet things like helicopters and cookies are not subject to any ta uh, any tax. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Uh, so there's some good and some bad in that uh, that that little story. I mean, it's great that um, uh, you know in the UK, uh, you know, companies are becoming so much more. Um, considerate of their female employees, but this idea of a tax on sanitary products, uh, these aren't luxury items, these are necessities for heaven's sake. Um, also, there was an article uh, in the news today that the first U.S. uterus transplant failed. Uh, the 26-year-old woman who was supposed to be the first U.S. recipient of a uterus transplant in the United States developed complications yesterday and had to have the organ removed, the Cleveland Clinic announced today. The initial February 24th procedure on the patient known only as Lindsay was heralded as a success at a press conference two days ago. But Lindsay is reportedly uh, doing well now that the organ's been removed, and the clinic declined to elaborate on the nature of her complications, though pathologists investigate the transplant to understand what went wrong. Uterus transplants, that is a new one on me. Yes, indeed. And uh, the final uh, little story from uh, your roving goddess reporter, Pat, um, this is uh, talking about periods again. Um, periods are a health reality for 50% of the world's population is the uh, subtitle. Um, a recent study conducted by the Women's Health app, Clue, in partnership with the International Women's Health Coalition, asked 90,000 females from 190 countries about their periods and how menstruation was perceived. While the 86% of all respondents said they felt comfortable talking to other women about menstruation, only 34% said they would be open to discussing it with male friends or colleagues, with just 14% of women in Russia and 12% in Japan saying they'd feel comfortable speaking with men about their periods. 
the survey also found that over 5,000 euphemisms for periods exist in different languages, including ant flow or time of the month uh, or lingonberry week. Um, and, uh, and some people say the, the English have landed. Uh, the French say that. The English have landed, but they say it in their native tongue. Uh, 17% of survey participants said they had missed schoolwork or an event because they were afraid of someone finding out they were on their period. In Brazil and Australia, one in four women said they skipped an activity because of this fear. 82% of respondents said they received some information about starting their period. However, this number plunged significantly in some countries. In Russia, for instance, 75% of participants said they had not received sufficient education. In Belarus, that number was 69%. Whew. You know, in this day and age, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Um, and the first thing I want to say about this is uh, the beginning of this little article talked about um, women would feel comfortable talking about it to other women, but not to men. It reminds me of the incredible work being done in the red tents, uh, where women come together and talk about all sorts of things, including that. Uh, but it also reminds me of the important statement a friend of mine's documentary made. Uh, her her name is Roberta Canto, and she has a trilogy out, and I think it's called um, Moon Time, Blood Time, Moon Time, Dream Time. And in it, uh, she talks about the importance of including <clears throat> male members of the family uh, in uh, this important life passage when a young woman uh, has her first menses. And I think that's an important thing because it... Um, it, it makes it more natural and normal, uh, I think, for women and men to speak about it. I think it also uh, gives uh, the, the men of the house or the boys of the house the idea that this is something sacred and natural uh, instead of, um, you know, the silly high school teasing and stuff that, uh, you know, usually ensues. So um, you might want to look up Roberta Canto's Blood Time, Moon Time, a dream time. And uh, about this idea of uh, euphemisms for periods, my mother used to say, she used to say, are you sick yet? Or have you, or have you, uh, or are you sick this month? So, you know, we have these negative kind of connotations with it. Um, that's another thing that uh, people like the folks with the red tent or trying to change. You know, we have to change the story. We change the narrative. It's not something uh, negative. It doesn't have to be. It's, it's our mindset. It's our conditioning. It's our brainwashing. And finally, uh, about so many women that don't even have uh, feminine protection, I remember a long time ago uh, I did a story on how in India and in Africa so many women don't have sanitary pads, uh, which prevents girls from going to school. And, um, you know, that that in itself is uh, it would be a wonderful thing to do. Uh, if there were a way to connect with a group that provided uh, sanitary pads to girls in these third world countries, um, you know, if somebody's looking for a mission, that would be a great mission. 
Okay, so thank you, Pat, uh, my roving reporter, for all these these interesting um, stories to share with listeners. Um, and as I come to a close tonight, I want to remind you the three Fs. Uh, please uh, hit the follow button on my blog talk uh, show page. So you get notice of guests each week, uh, and you don't have to rely on my emails that I might not have time to send. Also, go to my Facebook pages. Uh, if you haven't already, please like them. Uh, there's a Karen Tate author page and a Karen Tate uh, personal page. There's also pages for my books, uh, Goddess Calling, Walking an Ancient Path, and Sacred Places of Goddess. And uh, finally, uh, if you're feeling the burn, uh, if you've been putting your energy into helping Bernie Sanders win like I am, please amp it up in the month of March. March is a hugely important month as the states across the country uh, come out and vote. Donate, volunteer, phone bank, vote, and bring your friends to the polls or the caucuses. And you know what? If you've been thinking about phone banking, let me tell you, it doesn't cost you anything because they call you and it's totally free. Um, the only thing it costs you is your time. And you know what? It is not hard. They give you a script. And after you've done two or three, you fall into a rhythm. So give it a try. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And you know what? You will feel like you have done something to change the world instead of uh, just sitting back waiting for it to happen or leaving it to other people to do. And, uh, and to the naysayer, naysayers who say Bernie isn't a good idea, I um, will remind you about the mission statement of the show and the words of Gandhi because I think they all work together. You know, this is all part of the paradigm shift we've been waiting for, people. Um, if I was a person who uh, was afraid to um, blaze a trail, if I was a person uh, who felt I had to conform and um, bend to the will of the status quo, uh, this show would not exist. I would not have been talking about um, the the wonders and glory of goddess and goddess spirituality and goddess ideals and archetypes and all of that for the last 10 years. Likewise with Bernie. This is part of the paradigm shift we have been waiting for. So whether we're talking about goddess and the sacred feminine or we're talking about Bernie, Bernie Sanders, take these words of Gandhi to heart. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Yes, indeed. And uh, for naysayers, uh, you might want to know that uh, leaders in the goddess community like Starhawk and Carol Christ, well, uh, they they, uh, are also out there supporting uh, Bernie. You know, uh, we've all been fighting the establishment as goddess advocates and feminists for decades. It doesn't make any sense to vote for the establishment or the establishment candidate, which is who I think uh, Hillary Clinton is. I can wait for a woman in the White House, and maybe that's Elizabeth Warren. Well, thank you for listening, uh, dear listeners, and uh, I will uh, let you hear the rest of Diva Haley's uh, Narayani. Uh, her version of Ancient Mother, and remember it's from her Sacred Alchemy CD. So enjoy, and uh, please remember to go to my guest tonight, uh, to her website. Uh, uh, I have 
I think I have it right here close. Yeah, I do. Uh, It's, of course, uh, Isabella Price. Her book is Sacred Love, Manifestations of the Goddess. And uh, her website is onetruth-manypaths.com. Okay, remember, I'm not here next week. Uh, I'll be here the following week with Azra Nomani. And please make sure you tune in. You won't want to miss that. Very famous woman, and it's my honor to be uh, interviewing her on the 23rd of March. And here we go, Diva Haley, uh, Narayani, Ancient Mother. Hey.